Father, that would be our prayer this morning, that we would have a growing love for you. Thank you, Father, for the great work of grace in our lives that you've worked. We recognize, Father, that um, we are a slow people, and we're sluggish, and we're stammering, and yet, Father, we're a people who you are at work growing and developing, and you've promised to continue your work in us even unto the day of Jesus Christ. And so we'll count on that, and so it's with eager anticipation that we take our Bibles, allowing your word to do its work in our lives, to open our eyes, to challenge our hearts, to guide our steps. We commit this time to you, Lord, and we ask that you would use it well in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to return in your Bible to the amazing book of Revelation. It's the last book in your Bible. If you're a little bit unfamiliar to your text, just take the back cover, flip it open, and flip back a few pages. We're going to begin in Revelation chapter 16. We've had some interruptions in our schedule, and let me mention that um, tonight I need, we need you to come out at 6.30, especially the membership. Um, that's one of the reasons we've been interrupted is that we allowed our youth pastor to have some pulpit time, our potential youth pastor, Mark Henson, and I trust that you'll make it a priority to be here. We know that we have a busy day with the baptism following the second service. I hope you'll be there. And then back here at 6.30, there's no dessert fellowship, just uh, a vote, a time of conversation and a vote, and I emphasize that. We don't do uh, a vote on a pastor very often, so please make it a priority. But Mark preached, and we had a couple other interruptions, so maybe you forget where we were, but the last time we gathered, we were talking about the beast and the false prophet, uh, the beast being synonymous for the, the Antichrist, and that then the false prophet coming, and, and the deception that goes on worldwide, and the mark of the beast, that 666, that without anybody receiving that mark, we're not 100% sure what it is, but uh, without that mark, they won't be able to buy or sell or trade, do commerce. They won't be able to travel. It will be very difficult. And you know that my approach to the book of Revelation has been uh, very much the way I approach all of the Bible, and that is that the words uh, are to be taken to mean what they say as much as possible. We understand them to be talking here about real people in real time in a real global environment. Underneath the Antichrist will be <clears throat> the... The word reflects through the prophecies of Daniel, and in the book of Revelation, it appears that the Antichrist will be a king of the earth who will surface over other kings. They will submit to him, and the globe will be broken down into sort of a ten-nation uh, uh, ten nation network of ruling, governing zones. Those ten nations will submit to the Antichrist overall. Let's review our timeline just briefly, catch you up to speed really quickly, because we've got a good bit of ground to cover. We want to try to wrap up this end time series in just the next couple of weeks. We've been trying to identify and help us understand some of the specific events that will take place According to Daniel's prophecy, Zechariah, Ezekiel, the book of Revelation, these events that seem to be going to unfold in time's future. We have our, our manger up here to mark the end of the Old Testament era, and God comes in His first coming through Christ, God in the flesh. God appears 33 years. Jesus goes to the cross, 
He, 40 days later, ascends up into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And we have this most mysterious time that the Apostle Paul, on multiple occasions in Ephesians and Colossians, references as a period of time that the prophets of old who wrote the Old Testament didn't see coming. They missed it. He calls it a mystery age. We call it the church age or the age of grace. It's why when we have church discipline issues, we don't get a stone, put it in a sling, swing it and whap them between the eyes, run up there, cut their head off and walk around for two hours with their head in the hand like David did Goliath. What's that all about? Well, this is a new framework. It's a new, we would call it a dispensation a time where God is not working through Israel in the way that he was to be the standard for the rest of the world, but he is now working through the church. We would teach that Israel has been set aside because of their disobedience. There's multiple references in the ministry of our Lord Jesus. And they have been kind of put on hold. They can be part of the church, but God is not focusing so much on Israel at this point. It's the church age, and, and it is a, a time for the gospel to go forward. And we call it the New Testament or the New Covenant time. It's going to be brought to a close, we believe, by that great event that we taught early on in our end time series. We call it the rapture of the church. You say, but that word's not in the Bible. We've already admitted that. It comes from the Septuagint, a Latin word that means to be snatched away. And the word snatched away is in the Bible. And uh, we, take away, we take from that a concept called the rapture of the church. It would appear different teachings in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4 is where we looked at the most. That there will be that sudden trumpet sound. 1 Corinthians 15 references this also. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so Jesus comes down to meet his church. The church is raptured and off they go. And we would place that based on, a, on the evidence of Scripture. Revelation 3.10, for example, references the fact that, that the church is, is going to be saved from the ultimate wrath of God. And there's other references as well. And that launches a time where God begins his focus once again on Israel. And we call this the 70th week of Daniel. We'll not review all that. Hopefully you've been able to track with some of that. But there is a seven-year period yet remaining based upon Daniel's prophecies that God is going to do a work. I don't know any other way to take it than a literal seven-year period because the times that Daniel talked about previous were very literal. 483 years of God's judgment on Israel, spreading them out, taking them out of their land. And so then when we get to our book of Revelation, about chapter 6, we realize that there begins to unfold on the earth in a global way and a, a cataclysmic sequence of events. The groundwork is laid, it's as though the carpet is laid out or the foundation is laid in Revelation 6 and the angels come and, or Jesus comes and breaks the seals and we have this, these overriding uh, uh, judgments that are to wake up the world, they are also to judge sinners and we call them the seal judgments. You can read about them in Revelation chapter 6. We move into chapter 7, 8 and up to 11 and we have the seven angels who blow their trumpets and there are trumpet judgments. Coming out of the seven trumpet judgments, the seventh angel blows his horn and the seventh trumpet judgment is represented in what we call, if you have a King James Bible, 
It would be seven vile judgments. V-I-A-L, vials, containers. The NIV translates it bowls. And it's the picture, as we've been talking about, as it were, the bowls filled with God's wrath that will be poured out on the earth. We've talked quite a bit about how the Antichrist really comes to fore and really surfaces with his authority, takes over the world through the deceptive power of Satan, through the influential deceptive power of the false prophet, right here, three and a half years into this last seven-year period. Now, I believe the Bible teaches the church has been raptured and the church is with Christ in heaven. And God is at work. There are messengers that will preach the gospel. People will be saved during this time. Everybody who's saved, will just about everybody who's saved and they can catch up with, will be killed. And there will be a significant tens of thousands, no doubt, of martyrs during this tribulation time. The last three and a half years we called the Great Tribulation Period, And we've talked at our last message about the beast, the false prophet, his mark. Today, we want to talk about his end, and we want to talk about what happens next. And it is the coming of Christ, and this is where we would place the second coming of Christ. When he comes, his feet are going to hit the mountain uh, in Jerusalem, and, and it splits, and he comes back. You're in Revelation chapter 16. If you haven't been asleep, and you've been watching any television this week, you know that a... A kind of a strange uh, thriller movie hit number one right away in the box office. Uh, Janet and I have hardly, are basically can't be considered moviegoers. We, I don't know when's the last time we've gone to a movie. But um, I was reading about this movie, Contagion. Did you hear about it? And basically it's based upon a virus that jumps from, from animals into people and it spreads like crazy and it just goes nuts. And I was reading how they consulted with um, bio uh, uh, people who work on, on that kind of stuff. I don't know what you call them. Bio, what's a good word for them? Chemists, bioterrorists, yeah. <laughs> people who, they, they consulted so they tried to make it look kind of real and talk the way people who, who were in infectious disease work how they would think. And I guess in the movie, according to what I was reading, reading, this contagion spreads globally. And in the review, they were talking about how a new virus, and they said a new virus jumping from animals to humans? Nothing fictional about that. Global spread of disease in a few days? In this age of jet travel? Absolutely. A social meltdown? If things get bad, plan on it. And that's the premise of the movie, but they were talking about how it's still very artificial because there's never been anything like this, what Contagion is presenting, and that is that one in seven people die from it, I guess, in the movie. They say that in the great flu epidemic of 1918, where the Spanish flu swept around the, the world, literally, basically, and a couple countries in uh, Europe and America, and many people died in America. My grandmother's first husband died in 1918 of the, in the flu epidemic, that it was one in 100. And so in the movie Contagion, it's one in seven. Well, I want to tell you that, there, that, uh, that before there was Contagion, there was John on Patmos having his vision, and what he wrote down is one in one. That there is going to be a flesh-eating disease that is going to be cast down by God on people. It will not need uh, people getting on jets to transfer themselves around the world. It will not need uh, people coming in contact with animals for this disease to spread. God will supernaturally spread this disease very rapidly. Before we dig into God's Word, and we're going to st 
We're going to go from Revelation 16 and jump over to Revelation 19. And what we want to cover in the next half hour or so is we want to talk about what these bold judgments are. What I want you to understand is that when you study these passages, it appears very clearly that what's happening is an acceleration of judgment. That as the time goes on, there is some some birth pains going on here. There is some earthquakes. There is, there is some disease. There is some times of trouble. And that allows for the natural surfacing of a world leader so that he can control and he can solve these problems. People are going to be crying out. There's going to be a global need for leadership based upon these events. That's how it would appear. By the time he comes here, he, he also creates a peace with Israel and the Arab nations and, and he violates that peace. That's the abomination of desolation. And in these last three and a half years, he really accelerates his power. And this is the time of the mark of the beast when people have to have the mark. It's going to be very difficult for people without the mark, but it will not be near so difficult as it will be for people with the mark, as we'll see in a minute that God said, if you take the mark, you're going to have all kinds of problems right at the end. My take would be that the bold judgments take place in rapid-fire succession, and that they probably cover a matter of months at the most, if not just a matter of weeks or days. It seems to me that if these bold judgments, and God is literally throwing out His wrath on the earth, it would be impossible for these bold judgments, global in scope, to go on for very long, or everybody would end up dead. Let's look and see... We're going to break it down as we go, and I'll give you uh, 11 points in breaking down our reading, and that sounds impossible, but we're just going to read and go. And I want you to note one other thing. You're going to notice when the bowl judgments unfold here, because uh, let me say this, where we're heading is we're heading to the fall of the Antichrist. What happens to the Antichrist? We're going to find that out today. He comes to his end, and he comes to his end when King Jesus returns in his second coming. Bam, bam. And it's going to be over. He thinks he's big stuff. He's, he is, his leash is only as long as God allows it to be. You're going to recognize that these judgments look like something that have already happened. And if you know your Bible a little bit, you're going to recognize that during Moses and the Egyptian plagues, when he was releasing Israel from Pharaoh's bondage, that some of these very kinds of judgments took place. Do you believe that those were real? Do you believe that the Nile River turned to blood? Do you believe that they had flesh-eating disease that attacked their skin? Was it real? It appears that that is exactly the kind of thing that's going to happen only here's how you think about it. We have a demonstration of God's power in Exodus chapter 6 with the plagues of Egypt. When we get, later, when we get earlier in the book of Revelation and the seal, uh, seals unfold laying the foundation for what's coming and the specific trumpet judgments, those angels, blow their horn and specific judgment falls from God, you're going to see a very similar kind of thing. Water turning to blood, skin diseases... A third of the earth burned up. But here's how you think about it. Exodus 6, regional. The Nile region dealing specifically with Egypt and the Israelites. The trumpet judgments. A taste of what is to come to wake up the world. 
A third of the earth. You'll see that repeatedly in the trumpet judgments. A third of the earth was this and a third of the earth. When we get to the bowl judgments, they look very similar. Water turning to blood, skin diseases. And they are global in nature, I believe. It just seems that the best way to understand this passage is that this is happening globally. It's happening in rapid fire succession. And and God is shaking the world as he's never shaken it before. And Jesus is ready to open the sky and come back. Let's read about it. Chapter 16, verse 1. We're going to go from verses 1 to 12 under point number 1. And it is the people curse. The people curse. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Okay, so John is writing. He says, I heard a loud voice from the temple. I take that to be from the very temple of God, as in his vision. He is looking up into the throne room of heaven. And from the temple of God, the voice, no doubt, of God himself cries out. And he says, go pour out the seven bowls. Or an announcing angel says, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. And so the first angel, verse 2, 16 of Revelation, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. This is the first of six rapid succession judgments that ends with the people just cursing God. Turn back a couple pages to chapter 14 and verse 9. And you'll recall when you see this, that we've already read this when we were talking about the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet putting their mark on everyone. Notice in chapter 14, verse 9, there is a warning. Well, let's jump down to verse 11. Well, we can go back to 9. A third angel, it it says it in a couple different ways. 14, 9, look what it says. The third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will what? Look what it says. He will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. It sounds like the bowl judgments in the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb of God, And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Clearly a statement about the eternal damnation of the lost and those who took the mark. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Okay, so there is a specific warning. If the people took the mark, they were going to have terrible personal pain. 16.2, 16.2, back to 16.2, that first angel went and the first bowl of God's wrath gets poured out on the land, it says. Some people argue that that would just be the area of the Mediterranean and the land of Israel. The text doesn't say that. When you begin to unfold the rest of the text, it appears that these judgments are with all people. There is a global feel to this whole text here. And it says specifically that those who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image, just like the warning in 14, 9 through 11, their skin broke out in ugly and painful sores, skin-eating disease that they can do nothing about. This will be for everyone who took the mark, 
one for one. Not one in seven, not one in a hundred. The only people who will not have this disease are the people who did not take the mark. Let's move on. The second angel poured out his bowl, verse 3, and he pours his bowl out on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man. We've already seen this, as I said, in the trumpet judgments, when one-third of the water turned red. Look at this. It says, on the sea, it turned the blood into blood like that of a dead man, and it says, and every living thing in the sea died. Well, how do you take that? Is that a specific sea? Is that just the Mediterranean? Is it all of the waters of the earth? We'll keep reading. Some people um, have talked about something that you've heard about, and especially if you're in the, interested in the area of biology and ecosystems, you know what red tide is. Have you heard of that? Red tide. As far back as I think it was uh, uh, the early 1900s, I wanted to say 1918, but I might be thinking the flu epidemic, but maybe in the 30s, there was a significant red tide in the, uh, down off the coast of Florida. What it is is the microorganisms somehow uh, begin to die, and at first they, they change colors and they end up red, and it ends up turning the water red, and it, and it even thickens the water. Some people are suggesting that this is like a, a huge red tide that's going to take place. I don't know. It could be. The idea here, look what it says, it turned into blood like that of a dead man. I take that to be that it is a coagulated, congealed, like a pool of blood out on a slab of concrete when someone's been murdered and it begins to just thicken and congeal. The substance of the water is going to change, the color of the water is going to change, and all of the living creatures in the water will die. I assume then it will stink really bad. We move on, and the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they become blood, became blood. So not only are the saltwater seas killed off, but the freshwater is attacked as well. And then I heard an angel in charge of the waters say, and that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The angels in charge of the waters. Could it be that that's a kind of an insight into how God has divided up uh, all of creation and he has angels positioned, and I don't understand how a sovereign, almighty God and uh, works in his thinking exactly, other than what he's revealed to us, these snippets, but could it be that he has angels positioned as guardians holding back evil, that Satan would do more to create cataclysmic events if he could, but, but there's angels that literally protect fresh water. That's kind of what it looks like, doesn't it? His angel who protects, who oversees the water, and he says, you are just. He makes a statement about God. That angel does. And he says, you are just in these judgments. So you can't say, you're not fair, God. The angel says, you are completely just. You who are and who were the Holy One, because you have judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Now, I think that that's possibly including all through history, those who have been wicked against God, those who have been blasphemers against God's holy name, have always tried to kill the righteous prophets of God. In Israel, they were known for killing the prophets. When Jesus came, they rejected him and they killed him and they shed his blood. We also know that during the time of the tribulation, the final week of Daniel, this seven-year period, there will be a bloodbath towards anyone who is a follower of Christ. 
and their blood will be shed. And the angel who's been watching over the water says, you are right and just. You have now kind of even the the score. You remember in Romans chapter 12, and I have to go there often, you get deeply offended and deeply hurt. You want to retaliate, don't you? When you see injustice and you see God's righteous people being hurt by wicked people, and you think, God, why don't you wipe them out? And he says, Paul says to the church in Rome, in Romans 12, and to us, he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says that he will have a perfect justice. And this is sort of a blood for blood. You've shed blood, therefore I'm going to give you blood. It's as though God is looking on this wicked, blasphemous earth where the Antichrist has blasphemed. He's got the whole world worshiping himself. They hate Christ. He's the ultimate Antichrist. They've shed the blood of God's righteous people. And it's as though God says, okay, third bowl of wrath. Third bowl of wrath. You want blood? You want to make blood flow? I'll make blood flow. And he bloodies all the waters of the sea and he bloodies all the fresh water. That's why I say I don't think this can be a very wide or very uh, long span of time. If we're going to understand this to have any kind of a literal meaning, then it cannot be a long time or you could never survive what these people are going through. So they have the skin diseases. They have the second one pours out, it was the second angel, pours out his blood. The third angel on the rivers... The blood on the seas, the blood in the fresh water. And you've given them, look at at the end of verse 6, you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So know this, God is not unfair. God is not into condemning people who are undeserving of that condemnation. And that everything the world gets who has blasphemed God, everything they get... They will deserve, and one day it will be made plain to them, and they will understand that they deserve it. Notice that the fourth bowl gets poured out. A fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power. Okay, so the first one pours out his... Look at, notice in verse 2, and this is how the trumpet's judgments kind of tracked. The first one poured out his bowl on the land. Did you see that? The second one poured out his bowl on the sea and the waters on the third judgment. The fourth bowl, verse 8, pours his bowl out on the sun. Well, how does that happen? I don't know. This is bigger than anything that needs to be explained by natural cause. This is God implementing his judgment as God has every right to do and every capacity to do. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. you got the ultimate, it's global warming on steroids. They were seared by the intense heat. And look at, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But notice the next phrase. But they refused to repent and glorify him. You know what I get out of that verse? I get out of that verse that there's a guy with skin-eating disease In a minute, you're going to see he's literally gnawing his own tongue because he's so thirsty. Fresh water, salt water, stinks, the air stinks. In a minute, the sky's going to turn dark for a period of time. 
And they actually know, they actually know in their head at least, and in their heart, in their gizzard somewhere, they know that this is a judgment from Almighty God, and it says, and they refuse to bow down to Him. You know anybody like that? You know anybody that they know, you know they know the Bible's true, you know that they know God is real, and they refuse to surrender Him. In fact, they will still even shake their fist at Him and say, I hate you. And there they are. There they are. Remember as well, though, that Satan and the beast and the false prophet, as you're going to see in a minute, because of these demon possession, these demons that are at work, also have horrendous ability to deceive people. So these people are also under a curse of deception. Part of their curse, part of their judgment, is that they are given over to deception. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 talks about that as well, that the Holy Spirit will be removed and a spirit of deception will come in and people will buy into it. The fourth angel pours out his bowl. The the world heats up, so the, the temperature of the earth changes from its normal systems. I take it then that what you're going to have is you're going to have the polar caps really melting at that time. You're going to have flood. You're going to have all the, the snow and ice reserves of the mountains melting The sea level will go up, but the sea's been turned to blood. Everything will be out of kilter. The fifth angel then comes and pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. So this guy somehow throws his bowl of wrath, of God's wrath, onto the throne of the beast. Where is that? I take that to be in Jerusalem. It is possible that this darkness is a regional darkness. It plunges his kingdom. On the other hand, his kingdom is global. He's in charge of a global environment at this time, a global kingdom. I have no problem with saying that all around the world the sun darkens. Is it from volcanic ash? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. It says that it gets dark out. Have we ever seen it get dark before in God's working with people? In Egypt, haven't we? Got dark? How about on the day of the crucifixion? Got dark. It got dark. God can make it dark anytime He wants to. Evidently, there still is enough of a warming from the sun, even though it's dark, that the the earth doesn't instantly go into ice age and freeze. And look what He says. And men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused, they say it again, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel then poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Verses 1 through 12, men will curse God. And six judgments in a row pour out. He's going to literally dry up the great Euphrates River. Evidently, with the global warming, all the snow caps have melted. Mount Ararat is where the water source comes for the River Nile and Euphrates over there. And, and those mountains in Turkey, if all that water has gone up, then this judgment comes and he dries up the river somehow because the armies of the earth are going to have to march right through there. They're going to gather and march on Israel. That's verses 1 through 11. The people curse. It it matches other passages of Scripture. It's interesting. We won't take time to go there. But in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 12, 
Zechariah prophesies a day under the wrath of God when the people's flesh will rot and their eyes will rot in their sockets. That is a contagion you do not want to be a part of. I don't know how else to take it other than some kind of a real judgment falling on the belligerent, angry, wicked, blasphemous people who have taken the mark of the beast and they refuse to repent. The next thing we see, number two, not only number one, people curse. Number two, demons go to work. Demons work. Look at verse 13 and 14. And then John says... I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. You people really believe this stuff. This is crazy. This is what he saw. Something that looked like frogs to him. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. What was John seeing? How do you put this together? We cannot. This, This is extreme it is, he is talking about something like God is giving him glimpses of things so that he can write it down. But somehow, and a frog was an unclean animal. A frog was one of the gods in Egypt, one of the gods of the Nile. A frog, as you remember, was instrumental in the plagues of Egypt as well. So were these literal frogs that came right out of their mouths? I tend to doubt that. You know, I don't know. You say, well, you take everything else literal. Well, I I just don't know. It just, uh, that seems pretty, pretty crazy. John saw demons. The physical human body in our physical norm is not equipped to look into the spirit world. God in his vision of Christ, on John's vision on Patmos, he was allowed to look into the spirit world, and as he described what he saw, he described it as frogs coming out of their mouth. It clearly is a statement about the demon possession coming from Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, and the work of demons. Notice what they do. These demons go to work. They come out of the mouth of the false prophet, verse 14, and they are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world and they gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. There is going to be a great battle formation and it is a demon-driven battle formation. We don't have time and we're not going to take time to break it down, but you can see from other passages of Scripture In our Old Testament as well as our New Testament, he'll talk about Gog and Magog. Who is that? He'll talk about the the armies from the north. Many Bible scholars believe that that China will have a vast horseback-driven army, that Gog and Magog are the parts of the former Soviet Union. They will be allied. It appears that they are coming together under the faith of Islam at this time. And then when you have the Arab Spring and you have Islam leadership taking over all of the contemporary Arab nations, it will not be difficult for the armies of the earth to be unified and they will be all against Israel coming in to wipe God's people off the face of the earth. That little country. Have you ever looked at a map lately? I've been seeing some in on uh, you know news headlines and things that I've been looking at and you, you look at a grand scope map. And it is almost laughable. 
You have these huge country, these vast land resources of Iraq, Iran, Turkey, Afghanistan, the, the Saudi and the other nations. And you have to get your magnifying glass out to go over there and look at this little tiny sliver of land right there on the Mediterranean. And you think, that's what it's all about. They all hate that little country. And it is minuscule. All of what we're seeing in the news does nothing to me but reinforce the reality of God's Word. I don't see anything with the development of technology. I don't see anything with the geopolitical framework going on around us. I don't see anything that causes me to question the framework of my understanding of Scripture. It appears to me the stage is clearly being set for all of this to come together and take place. It's right there. We then have this word of interruption that evidently is a word from Jesus himself. Verse 15, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. It didn't really make sense to me that that was right in the middle of this passage. The only thing I could make of it was that it was some kind of a word of reminder and a word of hope to believers that were present. Be ready. There are some parables in the Olivet Discourse as well. Keep your lamps lit. Get your oil ready. Don't give up. Don't be found lacking. And it is a word of hope that he is coming and he's going to come like a thief. And that's a repeated phrase, isn't it? And then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Literally, that is a word, called, word that means in the Hebrew Mount Megiddo or Mount Megiddo. I probably don't say it the way somebody who knows their Hebrew literature would say it properly. Mount Megiddo. There it is. There is no Mount Megiddo. There is no Mount Megiddo. I don't know how you want to say it. So some Bible students believe that it is a reference to the hill country that is around this area. And this is a plain, then it surrounds a plain, the, the plain of Megiddo, that is an area of about 60 miles north of of Jerusalem, and it is an open plain there that would not hold all the armies of the earth. Historians tell us, and Bible scholars tell us, that on the plain of Megiddo there, with the mountains surrounding it, where the battle of Armageddon, you've heard that, you've heard the word Armageddon all your life, here's where it comes from, right here. The Bible doesn't say all that much about it. But the armies of the earth are gathering for this battle they come to, to wipe out God's people and they even have a sense of wanting to fight the one on the horse who appears in the sky. They are going to fight God himself and kill God, I guess. That plain there, 60 miles north of Jerusalem, is the site of, the, of battle of over 200 battles. And our, in our Old Testament, there were numerous battles there. And... Uh, uh, there, it's interesting, and we'll not take time to, to recount uh, numerous of those, um, but many of the Old Testament battles took place in that plain. Bible scholars, when they look at that, recognize that if, if these vast armies of the world come in here, that it's not all going to fit right there in that valley, on that plain. And so there is some belief that, that there is a stretch, and you'll see it's going to say, it says back... Um, I have it written down somewhere, chapter 12 maybe, where for about 180 miles, 180 miles, the blood is going to flow up to the bridle level on a horse. 
There's going to be significant bloodshed, and evidently those armies are going to spread out along that whole region, and they will not all just be right there in that valley. People curse, demons work, deceiving the the people of the world, gathering the armies. Armies march, look at verse 16, armies march, number three, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in his Hebrew is called Armageddon. And then the seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air, out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Number four, God shouts, God shouts. Kind of reminds you of when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished. The work is done. And here, as these armies are assembling, can you picture these armies coming in from all around? The seventh angel is ready to cast out his wrath. And God shouts, it is complete. That which needed to be done is done. It's done. God shouts. Then the earthquakes, number five, the earthquakes. Look at. Verse 17 again, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. And then there came flashes of lightning and rumbling peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. Now look at this. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. This has never happened before. I take it to be global in nature because along with this it says, verse 19, the great city split into three parts and the city of the nations collapsed. I take it that God literally shakes the whole world and some Bible commentaries suggest that this is a reconfiguring of the earth and a reconfiguring of the very city and land of Jerusalem, and land of Israel, and city of Jerusalem, and that the whole earth is shaken down. It's going to say that the mountains fall down. The globe will lose its topographical texture that we know today because of this massive earthquake. And some Bible commentaries suggest that God is reconfiguring the earth to prepare For what's going to happen next after his second coming is this thousand-year reign of Christ on earth where Jerusalem will be elevated above the rest of the earth. It will be the capital of the world and Jesus himself will rule. We're going to talk about that, Lord willing, next week. What we believe the Bible teaches about that. Back to verse 18. The flashing lightnings, rumbles, peals of thunder. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The city splits. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Ezekiel predicts that Babylon will be wiped out and it will never be inhabited again. I take it that it happens right there, once and for all. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men. And there they go again. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Number six, I wrote down the sky falls. The sky falls. 100-pound hailstones. On record right now, I think two pounds is the record hailstone. Two pounds. 100 pounds. That's significant. I think two pounds is significant when they're falling out of the sky and they're hard as ice. What's going on here? 
That's why I suggest that this is rapid fire. This is happening in a very short time. It is an accelerated kind of thing. And God is at work and the whole earth is shaking and everything's going crazy. And this can only last probably a matter of days, if not just hours. We're getting right to the end. What do we see happening so far? We see the people cursing. We see the demons at work. We see armies marching. We hear God shouting. We hear, feel the earthquake. The sky is falling. The next thing that happens is a parenthesis in 17 and 18. And we bump clear to chapter 19, verse 11, before we pick up the chronological flow of the story. And the next thing that happens, number seven, is that heaven opens. Heaven opens. The story is picked up. There's a parenthesis and God deals with some other things, some that have already happened uh, previous to chapter 16 in the tribulation time, dealing specifically with the harlot of, of Babylon and the false religious system. And in chapter 19, verse 11, we pick up the sequential order of events, evidently. John says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. The unnamed name there. He is dressed, unspoken name. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this, this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a moment. Number seven, the sky is going to open right in the middle of all this. It's a horrific time going on. And the sky parts and King Jesus comes. The last time he came riding into Jerusalem, what was he riding on? A donkey in all of his humility. And he was controversial and they nailed him to a cross. This day when he rides into Jerusalem and the ground splits under his feet, he's riding on the conqueror's white horse. He's got the sword of the word of his mouth. And he is taking conquest over his world once and for all. Uh, there will be one more uprising. What an amazing sight. The armies of heaven. Who is that? Who are the armies of heaven? Bible students suggest that it would be made up of all the believers who have gone to heaven already. The church saints, glorified church saints, the tribulation saints will have brought, been brought up into his presence already by then. Old Testament saints will have been resurrected. And perhaps even angels themselves will be included. The Bible doesn't define exactly who it is, but perhaps that's it. Perhaps it will be some of us. Perhaps it will be all of us. Riding with Jesus out of the sky. I don't know. I like to think it is. I'd love to be in his army. I know I'm one of his children. Are you? You can't be in his army if you're not one of his children and all people are not God's children. All people are created by God. But you need to come to the cross to be one of God's children. You need to come and confess and forsake your sin and acknowledge that what Jesus did was He became your substitute. He died on the cross in your place. 
And you leave your sin at the cross and you accept by faith His righteousness and you are what we call born again. Is that your testimony? You're going to hear it at the river today at 1 o'clock. The sky opens. Number 8, an angel calls. Look what happens. Verse 17. We'll wrap it up here quickly. We're going to make all 11. Did I say 10 points? It's 11. Okay. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying midair, Come, gather for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave and small and great. It is the ultimate put down. It is the ultimate humiliation. You think you're the king of the world? You think the world worships you? You think you can gather in in an alliance the ten zones of the world and all of their armies and they'll be under your command and you can attack God himself and God in a moment Really, it is a misnomer to call this the battle of Armageddon. It's really the slaughter at Armageddon. There's not going to be any fighting. God's going to speak his word, the sword of his mouth, and they're going to be dead. And the angel shouts, and he gathers in the vultures of the air. And it's the ultimate humiliation for mighty proud kings to lie dead, unburied, bloated on the battlefield with vultures chewing on their eyeballs. They think they're big stuff. The vultures are just going to eat their guts out on the field. They're nothing. The angel calls, number eight, and the beast falls, number nine. The beast falls. Look at number 19. Here's what happens to the Antichrist. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. So they literally have it in their head that the one who's on the horse and his army, they're going to make war against him. We're just going to defeat God. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. And the two of them were thrown alive in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Is that real? Is that literal? Looks like it to me. It's a lot easier to understand that than frogs coming out of somebody's mouth. What do you have here? The sky opens. The angel calls the birds, number eight. Number nine, the beast falls. God captures him, casts him into the lake of fire. We'll look at that another day. Number ten, the birds feast. Verse 21, the birds feast and all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. Three more verses, number eleven, and Satan is bound. Satan is bound. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations any more, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. We'll pick it up there next week.